Welcome to Mr. Beitzel's Georgia Studies podcast. In this episode, we're going to discuss the westward expansion in Georgia from the end of the Revolutionary War until the start of the antebellum period and the American Civil War in 1860. To understand westward expansion in Georgia, first you need to understand what it was trying to do as a state and what its overall goals were. Georgia wanted to build its population because it wanted to improve its economy. It knew that the only way it was really going to become a more powerful state um, on the national level and also just a more economically successful state was to have more people come to Georgia and work in Georgia because that raises tax revenue. It raises all sorts of other ways to increase and improve the economy. So Georgia does a number of things policy-wise to encourage this movement. The first thing that it does is it starts to give away land. Under its first land distribution system called the Hedrite system, any person, any male head of household, hence Hedrite, could come to Georgia and gain free land, basically, based on their family size. So you had the minimum number, a minimum amount of land was about 200 acres up to 1,000 acres based on numbers of people in your family, ownership of slaves, et cetera, and so forth. So they set up some incentives for people from other states to say, I can go to Georgia, get some land, and sort of start my own farm, start my own business, and hopefully you know, make a go of it and be successful. Along with the Headright system in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Georgia also founds the first public university. There were no elementary schools. There were no primary schools of note or of on a public on a public level during this time period. But there had been colleges. But every college up to that point had been private. And what Georgia decides to do, and it's the first state to do it, is to give some land, just like under the Headright system. But they grant land in an area to be used specifically for a place of higher education. The goal being to encourage the population within Georgia to attend school at a low price, to build up their education base, and also to incentivize more people to move to Georgia. If you come to Georgia, you're going to get access to this state education system. So that happens in the early or the late 1700s. Also in the late 1700s and right about the turn of the century, entering the 1800s, other developments make land further inland much more valuable to individuals and to farmers. And we'll get to those developments later. But what what this leads to is because there's so much money available, it leads to the ability and actual corruption in Georgia. And this is what we refer to as the Yazoo land fraud. Some land companies wanting a bunch of land further inland to be able to sell for a profit bribed or paid off members of the Georgia legislature and Georgia's governor to sell them that land through a piece of legislation called the Yazoo Land Act for almost nothing, for very, very cheap, one to two cents per acre, and it was millions of acres of land. The government would would have been allowed to do it. It is the bribery that makes it corrupt where they're getting paid to do their jobs by land companies to do them in their favor. And when this is discovered, there's mass protests and anger all across Georgia. The members of the legislature that were involved in this land fraud are voted out of office. The governor is voted out of office. New people are elected. And the new legislature 
has a ceremony where they go outside, take the Yazoo land document, and burn it on the steps of the Capitol to show how much how ashamed they are of it. But their apology isn't really enough, and there are some punishments levied upon Georgia from the federal government or the central government, and that causes Georgia to lose its border at the Mississippi River and have that border shrink all the way back east to the Chattahoochee River, Georgia's current and modern-day border. The amount of land they lost in this punishment was about two-thirds the size of the state, and the Yazoo land fraud is the reason why Georgia is shaped the way it is today. So Georgia still has some land it wants to give away. As a state, it still has a bunch of areas that it wants people to move to, to start farms, to help build its economy, to help expand as far west as it now is able to based on its new shortened border. And it changes its process from the headright system, which was done, you know, person to person in an office, to the land lottery system. And the land lottery system is just like it sounds. It is a lottery off of land. They went out and they parceled off land in a nice little square plots, about 200 acres wide, and they numbered all the plots. They put all the numbers in a barrel. If you were eligible to be in it, if you were a war veteran, if you were a widow, if and other and if you were a man, you could just like put your name in the barrel and they would draw a piece of land and they'd draw a name and if you got your name drawn, you won the land lottery and you were able to purchase that land for about 4 to 7 cents per acre, extraordinarily cheap. And this is how the land lottery works, and it's how they divide and parcel out land on Georgia's western side um, all the way through the end of this era, including in the northwest corner of Georgia, that land that is uh, parceled off following the removal of the Cherokee is done via a land lottery. So why is this land so desirable? Well, it's desirable because you can now make money, and a lot of money, on land further west and further away from the east coast of the United States and the east coast of Georgia, the coastal plain region. All of this land is now able to be farmed and able to be farmed at it for a cash crop with a huge profit. And it is because of two technological developments. The first is the invention of the cotton gin. Eli Whitney invents the cotton gin in 1796 or abouts. And that simple machine that cleans cotton and makes it much more valuable, much more useful, faster, and allows farmers to grow basically twice the amount in the same period of time because it cleaned the cotton so fast. It massively increases people's ability to survive on a farm and also, if you have a large enough farm, to become extraordinarily wealthy. The other technological development that's going on at the same time is the expansion of the railroads through Georgia. This expansion comes, goes in and, in and across the state. So it allows all those cotton farmers, if they are further inland and further west, to get their cotton to the markets in, at first in Savannah and then later in Georgia's new capital of Atlanta, where all the central training is on railroad very, very fast and very, very efficiently. It is worth it for them to do it. They can get there faster. They can make more money. It is more efficient. And now people are becoming wealthy farmers, the rich are getting richer, the middle class are getting wealthier, and even the poor are now becoming more successful on their farms by growing only cotton. By the end of this era, Georgia doesn't grow anything other than cotton. It's importing food from other states. The only agriculture production of any note is cotton, and that's because of these two technological advancements. The cotton gin and the railroad are only one part of the story of the changes in agriculture in the American South during this uh, time period of westward expansion. The other part of that story comes from what 
the effect both of those have on how cotton is produced. The combined effect of both the railroad and the cotton gin lead to a not only a specialization in cotton production in the South, but also a much higher reliance on the use of slaves to pick the cotton. It was the only part of the production process that had been slowed down or was slowing down the farmers. They could get it to market faster. They could clean it faster. They could grow it faster and more efficiently. The only thing slowing them down was getting it from the fields to the cotton gin in order to get paid at the ports and where the where the trains ended up taking it. And the only thing that slowing them down was the labor to get it from the fields to the cotton gin. And that labor became almost exclusively slave population. You see a direct correlation in the exponential rise of cotton bales produced per year in the United States and the number of slaves produced. The only thing going up more than the slave number is the number of bales of cotton because they've totally switched their agriculture production to just that one product. So they have the labor in slaves, they have the technology and the railroad and the cotton gin, and they have the people willing to move to Georgia to do the farming because there's money to be made. And they have the policies enacted and in place to dole out the land as quickly as possible so that now the state can start raising revenue, can start growing its economy. The only thing it needs now is land. And over the course of the next 30, 40 years, they slowly chip away at all the land across the state of Georgia as we know it today. From 1733 all the way to 1827, you see all the arable land in the Piedmont and then the coastal plains partitioned away or treated away from the creek uh, parcel by parcel by parcel. Um, the most notor notorious one being the selling of the land by um, Creek Chief William McIntosh. He sells the land in a treaty, just like all the other treaties, but he does it without the permission of other Creek leaders and is uh, murdered on the night that he signs the treaty selling all that land to the Americans. It costs him his life. It costs the Creek their land, but it is not the last time that Creek land is treated away, and eventually the Creek are forced to move from the southeastern part of the United States to uh, central Oklahoma. So while the Creek are slowly treating and negotiating their land away, parcel by parcel, trying to maintain as much power on their land as they can while avoiding conflict with the Americans, the Cherokee are in a more beneficial position in Georgia because they their land is not located in the highly arable land. They're in the northwestern corner in the Ridge and Valley, Appalachian Plateau, and Blue Ridge region. And for years, that land is just not very desirable because it can't grow a lot of cotton and it's hard to build railroads up there. But that changes in 1929 when gold is discovered in Dahlonega, which is in the coastal plain region. That gold leads to a massive gold rush from Americans who just invade what was the Cher or what is the Cherokee land. Um, they force the Cherokee off. They lottery the land away using the land lottery process. And the very, very quickly, the Cherokee are removed from that area so the miners can come and look for gold to get as rich as they can as quickly as possible. So not all the land in Georgia is desirable. There are Americans that want every piece of it. And the only thing standing in their way from that land now is the removal of all the American Indians from the Piedmont from the coastal plain in the creek, and now from the Cherokee in northwest Georgia in the mountain areas where they have bound gold. What this creates is another showdown between the Cherokee and the United States government. And the Cherokee take a different tactic. Instead of signing the treaty, the Cherokee fight for their land. 
um, in U.S. court. They have, they have assimilated their culture um, so far into the American one that they have a written language um, with a syllabi, syllabary created by um, one of their one of their tribe members named Sequoia. They have a constitution. They've they have a court system. They have a central government. They have consolidated all the power of their tribes under Chief John Ross, and they are behaving as close to the American way as they possibly can. And so when their land becomes demanded by the Americans, they fight back in the American fashion in the court system. They take them to court and eventually a case called Worcester versus Georgia makes its way all the way to the Supreme Court. So what happens next? Well, next come the federal government coming down to North Georgia and to Tennessee parts of Alabama, rounding up the Cherokee, evicting them from their homes, and marching them in winter from Georgia to what is modern-day Oklahoma. 4,000 Native Americans die on the trip of starvation, of freezing to death, of disease. They bury their children at night that they're forced to carry if they die in their arms. And it is a genocide of American Indians or Native Americans at the hands of the United States government. the outcome of Worcester versus Georgia, a full description of that court case and how it led to the Trail of Tears. Please see the Worcester versus Georgia episode in this podcast feed.